Hey everyone, this is uh, Dave Broadback sitting here. It's August of 2019 and I'm getting ready for the term. Uh, you may be here. It's really hot right now in here, in this room, but you may be listening to this when it's very cold. Isn't the internet amazing? Anyway, this is uh, the lecture you're about to hear is from Psych 4006, The History of Psychology for the 2019 Fall Term. Hope you enjoy it. Don't you go bragging about how much you've seen, you haven't seen a thing. Okay, so um, today I want to talk about um, behavior. This is getting closer to my area of actual training, I guess you'd say, though I wouldn't call myself a behaviorist. I might. Evolutionary cognitive behaviorist? That doesn't sound right. Uh, but it's something like that. So this is this is up my alley. And this is, in fact, uh, I told you guys that when I wrote my history of psych essay in 1987, it was about why this behavior is so readily accepted in America. Uh, it's a peculiarly American phenomenon. Part of that is because after World War I, Germany is rebuilding. Germany is really in turmoil. Right? You've got to understand that after World War I, the Allies did something kind of silly. Because at the Treaty of Versailles negotiations, we said, we're, we take, we, we've beaten you in a war. Now, here's, here are our terms. You will now pay for the war. All of it. So when you tell a country to pay for a global war, their economy collapses. Right? So Germany basically, are there still universities? Yes. But there's a lot less funding for things. And German ideas in the general public aren't good. And that isn't, that isn't a criticism at all of, that's a criticism of the Western Allies. So that's France and the UK and to a lesser extent the states because they didn't push for that. Um, but we basically destroy Germany. Okay. We can make an argument here and talk about they probably shouldn't start World War I. Fair enough. But there was not a magnanimous victor thing going on like there was in World War II because I think we probably learned our lesson. So part of what's happening here is the descendants of Germany in importance and the ascendance of the states, right? But instead of the states, let's start by talking about a Russian, Ivan Pavlov. Uh, so those are his dates. Uh, so he lives, that's, that's a good run, especially for someone who lived in eventually the former Soviet Union. Uh, here he is. I don't know what he's thinking about. Saliva in that picture. So how are you going to become, you've got to understand something about Russia. Let's take a little historical context with Russia. At the time, socially, Russia is, and I would, this is conservatively saying this, it's 200 years behind the rest of the, of the Western world. There were still serfs. Do you know what serfs are? These are basically people who are kind of like, One level up from slaves. It's a medieval kind of thing. There were serfs in Russia into the 1880s. Russia's a backwards country. Okay, so this sounds more like the Middle Ages stuff. How do you become educated if you go study for the ministry? Right? No, Darwin. Um, he then read Darwin and he read uh, Sechenov, who's uh, 
the father of Russian physiology. Father of, Pavlov called him the father of experimental psychology in Russia. He's probably really the father of experimental medicine, the idea of evidence-based medicine, something that we all take for granted today. So, so he's doing experiments to see if medical treatments work. He's not just talking about case studies. Of course, it doesn't get widely read outside Russia because it's written in Russian, right? So he gets his degree in medicine in 1883, um, and he becomes the director of the Experimental Medicine Institute in St. Petersburg. St. Petersburg, Russia, not St. Petersburg, Florida. That would be odd. He does research on digestion, and this, of course, as you know, eventually leads to his work on conditioning. So he's trying to figure out See, this Russian approach of doing experimental medicine, there were, there were physiologists in the States, in Europe, and there were medical doctors, of course. But no MDs who were practicing or were worrying about the physiology stuff. People weren't, the science and the application thereof were very disconnected, which is weird. Today, we would, we would find that odd, right? Um, so he goes to do this work on digestion uh, in St. Petersburg. And he's doing research on salivary, uh, the salivary reflex. And basically what he, what he finds is, of course, that when meat powder is presented to a dog, it salivates, you know that. You know that your saliva contains enzymes, right? Including salivary amylase, right? You know this. That if you take a cracker, not a salted cracker, but a regular like saltine, like soda cracker, or even a piece of raw potato, which is a weird thing to do, and put it in your mouth, you just let it sit on your tongue, it'll eventually, the, the amylase will break down the starch, and it'll start, after many seconds, it'll start to taste sweet, because you'll taste the sugars. It's odd, but true. So he's doing this stuff on, on salivary reflexes. He's doing it in dogs, and he finds out that when the meat powder is presented in the dog's mouth, it salivates. And there's a machine that he's using to do this automatic presentation of this food, and the machine makes a buzzing noise when it presents the meat powder. And then it turns out that even when there's no meat powder, when it's out of meat powder, but it still makes the buzzing noise, you get salivation. There was no bell, there was a buzzer. Also, we have this idea that Pavlov, these cute little cartoons of Pavlov ringing a bell and giving a dog food, and then it, Pavlov maybe collecting the saliva with the glass. That's not how it was done. <laughs> so there's these dogs, and they're sort of strapped into this apparatus, and they have tubes drilled right up here, and that's collecting the saliva. I know that's gross, but I mean, the little pictures of Pavlov ringing a bell, was it not a bell, it's a buzzer, and that he's like, just so, oh, I love my doggies and collecting their saliva. No, that's not what it was, okay? Um, it was an experimental setup and a pretty good one. And there's also the paper I looked at today, had you guys look at today, has that other story, right, of, of the American guy whose name completely escaped me again, who was doing the same thing with the knee-jerk reflex, right? Uh, again, sort of, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Serendipitously finding that you can get 
this conditioning phenomenon. It's very cool. Um, he wins the Nobel Prize because there's Nobel <laughs> um, in uh, physiology in 1904. So we can claim him as one of ours who won a Nobel Prize uh, along with Conrad Lorenz and uh, let's see, Hubert Weasel and Lynn Nadell. That said, none of these people were actually psychologists. And he would not describe himself as a psychologist. He would call, always call himself a physiologist. So, and you're saying, who's Ivan Petrovich? It's Ivan Pavlov. It's not his middle name. Russian names are weird. Well, I think our names are weird. But anybody here know about Eastern European naming conventions? I'm going to guess a no on that. So your middle name is your father's name with Vich. So that means Ivan, son of uh, Peter, right? So my name would be David Richardovich Brodbeck. I have a friend from Russia who calls me David Richardovich. And it's funny because that's a quasi-formal way you would address somebody. So like you would, you would call somebody like that. You very rarely use someone's first name only in Russia. You do that in very informal situations when you're one-on-one. -on -one. So no one ever would have called him Ivan. When they would be meeting with him, they would call him Ivan Petrovich. So, yeah, my son would be Jonathan Davidovich. Except that actually, it's funny, my middle name actually is Richard, so my son's middle name actually is David, and then Darwin. So maybe we're Russian secretly. And then it's different for women. And you have a different last name if you're a woman than a man because there's a feminine form of names. It's very different. So when I call him Ivan Petrovich, that's what people who knew him would call him. They would normally have called him Professor Pavlov. His idea here was he replicated stuff. I'll tell you, the most boring, if you ever have trouble sleeping, get a copy of Conditioned Reflexes. Holy Christ, what a boring book. Um, it's great science. It's really good science, but it's so boring because it's constantly just tiny changes of things and replicating it. That's boring to read about. It's good science, it's just boring. So it's basically, most of that book is about the acquisition of the condition response. That's basically all it is. Who, is, who here has taken learning? We haven't offered that in a couple of years, actually. You know what taking learning? Because Lori taught it last. Okay, so, but you did learn about classical condition of the course at intro, right? Somebody knows what he is. Um, and then he talks about extinction of the condition of the course. <coughs> so the idea here is that after a time you play, do the conditioned stimulus without the unconditioned stimulus, and eventually the condition response disappears. And he talks. He talked a lot about, or did work on, um, generalization discrimination. So generalization is the idea that, so generalization is, uh, let's say I give you, you being a dog, uh, 440 hertz tone, okay, which I think is a C, and that's when you get food. You're eventually going to like, pair the tone with the food. You're going to sound right. Now, 
I'm going to measure the amount of saliva. The beautiful thing about salivary conditioning is you can measure the amount of learning by measuring the number of milliliters of saliva. Like it's a beautiful, one of the reasons it, it, it's, it, it caught on was unlike even something like Wundt's introspection, this is completely irrespective of the subject. It's a, it's a reflex. You can't help but salivate when you think of food. It just happens. And if I can measure it all by having tubes drawn up here, uh, it's good. So if we look at the amount of saliva, you get the most here at 440, and then a little less around 440 hertz. Cool thing is you get a normal distribution around it. It's very groovy. That's supposed to be symmetrical. Um, so that's generalization. Discrimination, on the other hand, is let's say I have you have a 440 hertz tone and a four the matter. Gone this up at a 450 hertz tone. So if I do 440, so again, this 440 and 450s here, okay. But I explicitly play 440 and don't give you any food. You will learn that 450 predicts no food. This isn't how Pavlov would word it. This is how somebody modern person who studies animal learning and cognition would say. Uh, you explicitly have learned that 450 is not food. So you would get a distribution that looked more like this. It would drop right way off, and in fact, it shifts over. So you can learn to discriminate between two stimuli. In a lot of respects, all learning is animal learning studies. It's the study, study of generalization and discrimination. <clears throat> he actually found that when discriminations got too hard, that the animals would behave strangely. So if you're doing 440, 450 is probably doable. You guys start doing like 440, 442. Hard. That's to the point where that now Pavlov found what he called, what he talked about, called experimental neurosis. Experimental neurosis. And what that basically is, is that the animal now, instead of responding, starts behaving very oddly, walking around its cage, walking in circles, uh, biting itself, things like that. So Pavlov's thinking about an application, because he's saying, you know, this looks like something who somebody who has mental, some sort of mental illness would see. Maybe it's because the discriminations between what's good and what's bad in their life are so difficult that they end up with this kind of behavior. A bit of a stretch, but it, the behavior looks similar to something where someone's got a problem, right? So, you gotta understand that in 1917, the, there's a revolution in Russia, and one of the first things that revolutionary movements do, and this doesn't really matter what the revolution is, is it's pretty common that the first move you make is you kill the intellectuals or jail them. Russians did a lot of killing. Russians are, Russian history is extremely bloody and full of purges. So most academics, um, like I said, most revolutionary countries, uh, when they have a revolution, there's a purge of the universities. It's very common. And this happened in, in Russia. In, in, at the time, it was called Soviet Russia. Becomes in the Soviet Union. So Pavlov, it's like, you know, well, they're going to kill him. Well, there's a couple of things, first of all. He won a Nobel Prize, so he's famous. 
1917, the Russians didn't care a great deal about international opinion. But they realized they had somebody here who fit with their ideology, right? It fits their ideology because what you could do is his idea of conditioning animals could be applied to people. And the, the idea that people are kind of a blank slate and that you could condition them Maybe you could condition them to like communist ideas. It's interesting because the Communist Party likes Pavlov's ideas a lot. Pavlov didn't like the Communist Party very much. He was at best ambivalent about it. You've got to understand a few things about, especially post-1924 Soviet Union. This is a country where people are, it's a totalitarian state, okay? People disappear. Like, they just disappear. In the middle of the night, the Cheka, which is the, the old-time equivalent of what we eventually call the KGB, would show up at your door and take you away. And you don't go ask where they're gone, because that'll get you arrested too. And so under Stalin, so post, say, 24 or so, and especially into the 30s, into the 30s that the purges in Russia are, well, the Soviet Union, then, are, are, are unreal. Um, like, it's horrible what's going on there. Pavlov just basically keeps his mouth shut. He seems ambivalent about it. He doesn't make political statements, He's, except for the ones you have to make. Right? He eventually comes around to, says work's well funded. He keeps his head down, does his science, and he's allowed to travel outside the Soviet Union, which is something that most people weren't allowed to do. Totalitarian countries are notorious for not letting their people leave their countries. Right? So he's critical initially of Soviet ideas, but you could be critical in the early 20s if you were careful about how you were critical, you could be critical. He then kind of shut up and eventually came around to supporting Stalin, genocidal maniac Joseph Stalin, um, because it's like, there's another genocidal maniac and he wants to kill all of us. So the rise of Hitler in the 30s in Germany changes the thinking of Pavlov. He's like, this is, these guys are bad. We have to be ready. So I'm now pro-Stalin. So it's interesting that he fit in totally with, and it's because of science, he fit in with their views. But he eventually comes around and says, look, yeah, there's Hitler. I'll choose the evil guy from my country versus the evil guy from their country. Stalin was horrible. I don't think people learn that anymore. All right. So question about Pavlov, a little context there. So is Pavlov a behaviorist? I don't know. But are the roots of behaviorism in Pavlov? Yep. 
Okay, John Watson, don't know his middle name, don't know his father's name, he's also not Russian, so we'll just call him John Watson. Um, pretty good, right, 1858. Um, he was a, a functionalist, remember the Chicago functionalists, everybody training here from Chicago is a functional psychologist, they're worried about outcomes, not about process. And he gets his PhD in 1903, and he's looking at brain development and cognitive ability in rats. So learning ability, he wouldn't have said cognitive ability, right? Watson certainly wouldn't have said cognitive ability. Um, and from 1903 to 1908, he's on the faculty at Chicago. This is just, you're thinking, wait, he gets his PhD in 03, and they give him a job? That was not uncommon until maybe the very, oh, geez, I don't know. Until the 1970s, it was not uncommon that you finished your PhD at an institution, and if there was a job, you were certainly considered for it. Okay, so you were considered for a job at your school, even though you went to school there. It's... Not, was not uncommon. My PhD advisor got a PhD at the University of Toronto and got a job right away here at the University of Toronto. It was in 1972 or something. So, I mean, into the 70s, this was a, not an uncommon practice. Today, it would be not a common practice, I'll say that. Yeah. People going back to where they did their undergrad to get jobs, more common. Right? Look at Lori, she went to school here, she's got a job here. Uh, where I was at Bucknell two weeks ago, uh, Reggie Gazes, she got her undergrad at Bucknell. She's got a job at Bucknell. So I mean, it's not uncommon that people do that. They go back to their undergrad, but it's different. It's not usually where you got your PhD anymore, where you get your first job. He does studies with uh, Carr, studying very complicated bases. Rats on very complicated bases. So you know, today we talk about the eight-arm radial maze, things like that. No, 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 these are like, more like the kind of mazes you find the back of a comic book kind of thing, or uh, that, that kind of deal. So, something like that. So, can a rat learn this maze, and does it get better at it over time? The answer, of course, is yes and yes. Um, how many turns do they have to make? It's, it's sort of, it's very systematic. And, you know, not exciting. It's not exciting work. <laughs> so, he, in 1908, he spends some time then, goes on over to Johns Hopkins. In school. He does his animal work. And he's a young guy here. You know, he's, he's a young assistant professor. But he's influential. He's very... Um, productive, and he's talking about these radical new ideas. So he goes on to these animal studies, but he does lab work, he also does field work. So he goes out into the field and watches animal behavior, and he, tries to, and he teaches animals to do things. You know, um, so he's doing animal behavior both in the lab and in the field, which is rare for people doing animal psychology work in North America. In 1913, he writes a paper called The Behaviorist Manifesto. I find generally trusting anything that has the word manifesto in it 
Uh, usually it's a polemic. And this is a polemic. Like this is a, a piece of, it's political writing in a sense that it's saying, look at my great science ideas. It's political that way. It's not political as far as politics goes. But it's about my ideas are awesome. And he, that's where he lays out the idea of behaviorism. The idea that we should study behavior and not internal mental events. Because, and this is where the, you might think, yeah, okay, I, I got that. That's okay. You know, there's too much introspection. Um, there's too much study of consciousness. This Titchener stuff is starting to get ridiculous. Okay, yeah, I can see that. See, there's an extra step you can take, though. And that's saying there's no such thing as thinking or consciousness. That's an extra step, a step most, I don't think any of us, anybody here in the room think there's no such thing as thinking? I don't think any of us, I hope, think that. Um, well, I think that I don't think. <laughs> Mindset. Uh, a bit contradicting. <laughs> yeah, a little bit. But he said, thinking is just sub-vocal speech. It's just you talking to yourself. He, he recognized the criticism. It's like, well, you're getting me to read something and think about ideas, and you say there's no thinking. Well, what's thinking, Watson? And he's like, well, it's just sub-vocal speech. In other words, it's your internal monologue, and you're very, very just moving your lips just a little tiny bit. Excuse me? <laughs> so, A, it's ridiculous. We can all, I think, look on Bryce's face, it's kind of priceless right now. Uh, it, it's clearly ridiculous. But how would you test it? Well, what could you do? Any ideas? How would you test this to, to see that thinking is subvocal speech? Any thoughts? Uh, what about par paralyzing somebody and seeing if they still think? You're saying, well, Dave, you can't paralyze people. Actually, you can if you use the right dose of curare. It's in the uh, acetylcholinesterase inhibitor. So, and you gotta use the right dose because you use too much and people die. There weren't really ethics panels back then. <laughs> yeah, please. Um, what's some vocal speech mean? Uh, it's talking to yourself, but you can't hear it. I don't understand. Uh, yeah, it's So, <laughs> so it's like this. Right now, um, like, you know your internal monologue, like you've got, you're always thinking about things, right? Like you were thinking just a second ago, should I ask what some vocal speech is? I don't think I understand that. Oh, yeah, ask the question, Jeremy. You got that, that internal monologue. It's saying that it's that, and all that is, is actually you moving your lips and your tongue really quietly, so you can't hear it. Yeah, it's ridiculous. But so I understand why you couldn't get it because it's really stupid. Because <laughs> please, Chris, what's the sub part? It's below. It's below vocal. You can't hear it. Okay. Yeah, that's all. It is. Yeah. So it's your internal monologue, and it's all just behavior. There is no thinking involved. <laughs> this is again. It's clearly ridiculous. But to Watson's credit, he tests himself and other subjects. He gives them small amount of curare, enough that they're paralyzed. A curare used to be available a lot more because it was used in operations uh, before anesthetics, before the, the discovery of phenobarbital, really. Uh, the way that operations worked is they would just paralyze you. What? Yeah. 
So if you were to have an operation, what they would do is they would paralyze you and maybe knock you out with, say, ether. And going back to the American Civil War where this technique was developed, they'd give you, they'd give soldiers in the battlefield curare and a great deal of alcohol. And then that's how they did operations. And when I did that, it's like, because I'm talking about amputations, things like that. Oh, you still felt pain. You just couldn't move. The world's changed a lot. So he gives some subjects curare and he asks if they can think and they report having thought. He gives his, he had, to his credit, mad scientist Watson also gives himself, gives himself Gerardi, reports still thinking. His conclusion? This doesn't disprove my idea, which it does. Uh, it's that uh, uh, I couldn't get the dose right. That's not, that's poor science, right? It's kind of mad science, too. It's got a mad scientist angle that I kind of have a soft spot for. It's kind of a Bond villain kind of level of things, right? A little weird. It's clear, again, it's clearly ridiculous. So don't ever think that that's what, you know, your internal monologue is. Like, I, I can sit here, and while I'm talking, I can think about what I'm going to make for dinner. And sometimes I do that, actually, literally when I'm lecturing. Because I just do. Because I, I do the cooking at home, and it's like, well, what am I going to make? So how am I going to cook the scallops that I have defrosting in the fridge right now? Right? So that kind of thing sometimes goes through my head. That's my internal monologue. Now you know sometimes when you see me pausing, actually think about cooking techniques for scallops. So he says we should study overt behavior. Oh, wait. Now, that, this is, he's right here on the consciousness introspection. Subvocal speech is stupid. Overt, but yeah, I get that. But he also, again, says we shouldn't infer any internal processes from overt behavior. This is where I would step away. I think we all would say we should study overt behavior. That's what we study. But we infer cognitive mechanisms. And the goal here is if I give you the stimulus, can you predict the response? And given the response, can I predict the stimulus? And he says, look, we can apply this stuff. Think about what we can do in childbearing. Think about what we can do in a school setting. What we can do in a work setting. And in 1915, he gives a presidential address. He's now the president of the American Psychological Association for 1915. So this is 12 years post getting his PhD. That's pretty impressive. He's, and it shows you how the APA has changed. He's now been elected president of the APA. And he gives his presidential address, which you can still find in Psych Review. It's called uh, Psychology as the Behaviorist Views It. Um, and it's, uh, he basically rails against introspection and all these things. But he then also lays this stuff out. So he's talking about these procedures and the effects of them. He's talking really here about classical conditioning, about Pavlov's kind of conditioning, okay? Um, <laughs> okay, so he's in John, John, Johns Hopkins, and you know the Little Albert study? Right, the study with the kid who uh, made afraid of a white rat. 
nine-month-old baby. A nine-month-old baby that he and Rosalind Rayner, his graduate student, made afraid of a wet rat by frightening the poor child. That's not why he was asked to resign. He was asked to resign because Rosalind Rayner was his graduate student. Rosalind Rayner was also, well, they were very close friends. And he was already married. And by close friends, I mean they were sleeping together. And they weren't really sleeping so much as, you know. So this is a scandal. He's asked to resign, and he does. And then he goes to Mexico for a while because, I don't know, you can do that in Mexico or something. And he works a little bit there, but he comes back to the States, and he starts applying his son this, this scientific method, this behaviorist approach, this conditioning stuff, to advertising. There is always a Mad Men reference possibility. So market research is kind of invented by a psychologist, by Watson, a disgraced psychologist who was sleeping with his graduate student. He also writes books, so advertising campaigns based on emotions. Um, in fact, the, the first this pilot episode of Mad Men, Don Draper actually said advertising is all about emotion. Like he actually basically quotes John Watson. Most people I don't think realize that. He also writes popular articles in, in magazines like uh, The Atlantic okay, about behaviorism, about how this is how we should structure society. And he writes a popular book called Behaviorism in 1924. And he talks about the importance of the environment. So any person, given the right conditions, can become anything. Which again, fits with Mad Men, because if you know this backstory of Don Draper. Psychological Care of the Infant and the Child, 1938. Ooh, boy. He's saying things like, you shouldn't be hugging your children. Greet them with a warm, with, with a firm handshake. Like, he's, he's not a nice guy. John Watson was not a nice man. By all reports, he was really not a nice man. Um, everything was about behavior. Everything was about what are the outcomes going to be. And he obsessed to, on it to a point where he was a shitty father. Uh, neglected his kids, uh, like really awful. A rational parenting strategy rather than an emotional parenting strategy. Should you be rational with your kids? Well, yeah, of course. But you can't not have emotions about your kids. That's shitty. That's being a shitty parent, right? So Watson leaves academia, but behaviorism keeps going. So we end up with something called neo-behaviorism. Of the new behaviors. First of all, we get really into operational definitions. We've all heard about operational definitions, right? In 2127, 3286, you get that drilled into your head, operationalize, operationalize. That's fine, um, but that really helps behaviorism because it's like something we can measure. It's the operational definition. This allows for replication. I mean, this doesn't, this is good for science. It's good for our science, right? There's no, we can't argue that. So, if we can replicate stuff, 
And we can talk about operations, and then we these converging operations, these idea that things are coming together to give us explanations of things. Those are good things. So if you get the same sort of construct, that's converging operations here, you get increased confidence in your results when you get different operational definitions of the same construct pointing to the same results. That's replication. I mean, we, God, we hope for that in all science. It's hard to replicate in introspection work. You know why it's hard? Because you can't argue with my introspections. Because they're mine. Sorry, my son's texting. So people have come to a consensus that there's an evolutionary continuum. It's not really that how it works, but whatever. At this point, human to animal. That humans are animals and we operate by the same rules. That's true. And that learning and conditioning are really important. This focus on nurture. Okay? So B.F. Skinner, let's talk about B.F. There he is, with a bunch of pigeons. Also, by the way, apparently a super nice man. A friend of mine did his PhD with him, and he was a super nice man. Uh, and everybody I've ever known who's ever met him, he was just magnanimous and wonderful to talk to. And while he was a radical behaviorist, he invented those terms, he also was a really nice guy and very supportive of his graduates. He's a PhD from Harvard in 1931, and then he's a university fellow at Harvard until 38, basically like a postdoc. So he's doing research. Writes a book at the end of this, or well, a monograph, I guess you'd say, called The Behavior of Organisms in 1938. This is where he lays out radical behaviors. And he says, Pavlov did what he called type S conditioning. Two stimuli are paired, and you get a response. Right, so conditioned stimulus, unconditioned stimulus, response. That's what he called type S conditioning, or, yeah, yeah, type S conditioning. And then type R conditioning is operant conditioning. Behavior produces predictable consequences. Behavior produces predictable consequences. So he's in Minnesota for nine years, gets a job, uh, and then four years as the department head at Indiana. These are big research universities, and in '48 returns to Harvard to stay. And he works basically the whole time, like he doesn't really retire. He'd show up at conferences. I never got to meet him which is kind of sad because I would really like to have met him. But I mean, a friend of mine, she met him, and she was just this young graduate student, and she went and like she dug through her stuff in her bag and found a copy of a paper he wrote and got him to autograph it, and he was totally happy to do that. Like, he was a really nice guy. But what is radical behavior? It's operant conditioning. 
It's an operant condition. It's we control the environment completely. We have the operant chamber. Skinner never called it a Skinner box because he was not, he was a very humble man. He said, operant chamber. Everybody's like, no, no, Skinner box. I tried to get the, 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 the cage and then a touch screen at one end. I tried to popularize that as called the Broadback box. No go. That was a joke. I didn't really do that. I called it that once as a joke to see if people would notice. Okay. Yeah. People noticed. It was in a talk in our lab group. It wasn't out in the world. I, wouldn't, I wasn't a complete jerk. So this, he called this the Experimental Analysis of Behavior. It's still a journal. The journal he found it called the Journal of Experimental Analysis of Behavior, JAB. Like, it still exists. And this is basically, we vary, it's like stimulus control. So how do you get, stimulus control is, the, is looking at a stimulus and how it ends up getting a certain response and how another stimulus gets a different response. That's what stimulus control is. So stimulus control basically is what learning is. Oh boy, did he hate theories. People would say your theories, but this isn't a theory. I'm not, I'm not, I'm just saying this is how, this is what I've observed. This is not a theory. I'm not talking about any internal events. I'm not talking about any, I'm not a structuralist. I'm not talking about how stuff works. I'm talking about this is what happens. It got to the point at Harvard where he was, it was so important to the behaviorist approach that people didn't say what's on your mind around the department. The, the people would say what's on your behavior. Don't talk about mind, no mind. And he preferred an inductive strategy. So this is, if this has happened before, it'll happen again. Not, oh, that happened and that happened, put those two things together. Not deductive reasoning, but inductive reasoning as we talk about, we talk about philosophy. So, he called deductive reasoning when we would say, oh, that's because of the short-term memory does this. He called those explanatory fictions. <laughs> and in fact, it's like, it's, it's the dangers of labels naming something. It's a nominal fallacy, right? I've talked about that before. The, I, we do this a lot. I shouldn't say a lot. We have a tendency to, when we've given something a name, to think we've explained it. Right. So, uh, the example I've used before, why are women paid less than men for the same job? And people say sexism. And you say, no, 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 that's not the explanation. You have just given it a name. You could have said Steve. What you want to say is, the system is set up such as this, and this happened, explain the phenomenon, right? Not just give it a name. And we have this tendency to believe that we've explained something if we've named it. And my test always is, if I can look at something and say, if you've given me a term, if I just change the word to Steve, can I, you know, I do the same thing, right? So it's like, why does X happen? 
you believe your word, you say, okay, does that work if I just say Steve? Okay, I can fill that in, it's exactly the same thing. So he had a real, he was concerned about that. And that's really, to me, still a concern. We do that too much. It's done too much in social sciences, I think, in general. It happens a lot. Listen to, if you can stomach any political ads right now, I have them, oh man, do I have the mute button ready on my TV? And I mean, even the people I'm voting for, I don't want to see their ads. Nope. Stop talking. Be quiet. Part of me wants to just ban political ads. The other part of me thinks that's almost certainly unconstitutional. So, um, but yeah, I mean, you hear the nominal fallacy stuff going on in national, all parties, by the way, is unreal. That and there's other, there's lots of fallacies in political ads. And he was against that. I mean, that's, a, it's good. Because he said, talking about structures is just nominal fallacy. It's just an explanatory fiction. However, if I tell you actually how the thing works, if I tell you how working memory works, and then I say that's a product of working memory, I actually have explained it, right? But he said, no, don't do that. It's, this again is so beautifully American. It's the ideal of the technology and understanding how the products of things coming together create other things, so function, can allow us to create a perfect, a more perfect society. Predict and understand behavior, but also control behavior. That's prediction and control what science is about. So he was involved in something called Project Pigeon uh, in World War II, which was using, it was him and a lot of other people, uh, using pigeons to guide missiles. What? Well, you know, what you do is you have really good reconnaissance photos. You gotta understand, what do we do today? They have these things called JDAMs, <laughs> Joint Directed Attack Munition, where you program the coordinates into the missile and it hits like the place. <laughs> things work a lot differently. Modern technology. Guided by a GPS system, you know, you can launch uh, a cruise missile from 500 miles away from a submarine and it goes through the smokestack of a building. You can do that. Couldn't do that in World War II. Didn't really have a global positioning satellite system. So, but you can get good reconnaissance pictures. So what you do is you get a really good picture of some, I don't know, ball bearing factory in Schweinfurt, Germany. Because you want to destroy it because ball bearings are important in munitions. And then you train the pigeon. So you're gonna drop this bomb when it is over Schweinfurt. And the pigeon's in the bomb. And the pigeon's been trained to peck so that it keeps the image, because the pigeon can actually see an image in front of it to guide the bomb. And of course, the pigeon dies for freedom, going through a small stack of a ball bearing plantage wine for Germany. This was never used. But it would have worked. 
Like it really would have worked. Other people worked on this, Edward Tolman worked on this. Uh, everybody worked on the war after World War II, you gotta understand that. And um, you know Mythbusters? You know the Mythbusters? Well, the people, some of the people minus the two main guys uh, did a show on Netflix, and I forget the title of it, I'm sorry. Um, but if you probably search out Mythbusters on Netflix, you'll find them. Uh, and they tried Project Pigeon. They, again, they didn't actually have a pigeon in a bomb. But a friend of mine uh, from UCLA, Aaron Blaisdell, um, for a week trained a pigeon, and he was easily able to train it to guide a missile. It's easy to do. Like, I could do it. You probably couldn't, but you could if I trained you how to do it for about a week. Like, it's really not hard to do. It's just shaping and operating condition. One of the things that Skinner talked about was child rearing and teaching the importance of reinforcement. Uh, he also invented a thing which people seem to have completely misunderstood. And it was basically a crib that his daughter could live in, not live in, but at night she could be put in this thing. It, had a, it was temperature controlled, so it was like an incubator type thing, so you didn't have to have a whole bunch of blankets on it. It had a, f a feeding tube for milk in it and water. It's like something you'd put a, it's like a really luxurious version of something you'd put a rat in. It's actually a wonderful idea, and people thought it was evil because the child is in a cage, and the child's not in a cage. Look at a crib sometime, child's in a cage. Until child is big enough to climb out. And then one day, in the middle of night, you hear, boom! And you walk in there and go, kid escaped. <laughs> that happens from the crib, I mean, that's a thing. Didn't know you were a little, like, sometimes you just fall out of bed, and you sort of grew out of that, right? Like, you'd wake up and go, ugh! I just fell out of bed, mom, I'm fine. Doesn't happen when you hit, I don't know, 12 or so, it sort of stops, but it's like you have to learn how to sleep, which is weird. You get your first kid too, you get really freaked out. It's like, oh my God, we gotta get him a proper bed. He's gonna fall out, but yeah, he's gonna fall out. They all do. Uh, he even writes a book called Walden Two in 1948 about a, which is not a very good book. But it's about a community, a utopian community, based on condition. It's meant to be nice, this place, this wall. When you read it, it's got kind of a 1984 feel to it that I find really disturbing. But this is really, as you can see all this stuff, this is really, fits so beautifully with more of a, an American ethos than a European one, right? the individual, the environment. All people are equal and we can raise them up depending on their environment. That's a very, sort of, if we think of like national myths of the states, anyone can be president, right? That kind of thing, right? Fits with Canada a little bit too, but not on the same level, right? Like Watson said, you give me 12 boys, I will give you the 12 men. And I can change and, 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 and control how each of their behavior will turn out. One will be, a, one will be the president and one will be captain of industry, and one will be a thief, and one will be a professional baseball player. As he said, give me the boy, I'll give you the man. Skinner was like, we want to have a situation where everybody is raised up because we are understanding how behavior works. 
and if we understand behavior and its consequences, we can make society better. But we, when I say control here, I mean like prediction and control. If we can control individual behavior, that's best for everyone and the individual. Like I said, it, it fits beautifully with national myths. Every country has myths, the national myths of, 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 of the states, and a little a bit of a lesser extent, Canada. So generally, this is big in North America. It bleeds into Canada because we're right next door, and culturally, probably the two closest peoples in the world are Canadians and Americans, as far as their cultures go. So it makes sense. And after the war, Canada shifts from being looking at the UK to looking to the United States. Right? We consume pop culture from the States, etc. Unlike before the war, it was, we felt much more, when I say we, I mean Anglophone Canadians, felt much more British than we felt North American. You know there was no such thing as Canadian citizenship until 1947? Do you know that? There's no such thing. You were a British subject. There were only, Canadian citizenship starts in the 1940s. After the war, people are getting a national feeling, right? So again, and that comes from the war, and it comes from having more influence from the state. Behaviorism saves psychology. If psychology had continued on its introspectionist path, you would have died, or it would have become something completely different. I don't think it would have become the sciences. It also went way too far. Like, asking people what's on their behavior is ridiculous. Saying that thoughts don't exist, or just, or are just quote, epiphenomena, that all they are are people um, their sub-vocal, sub you know, speech. Come on. The biggest legacy to me, is that the methods are still used. So, when I do stuff with animals, with non-humans, I use those methods, right? My PhD work, even thinking of that, like going back to there, it's all done in Skinner boxes. Not all of it, half of it. Half? Why do I care what the damn proportion is? Now I do. Six, five, four, ten. 60% of the experiments were done in Skinner boxes. Um, we talk about operational definitions. Uh, all that stuff is in replication. Those are really important things. Those are really important things. So because of that, I think the biggest influence today, like the modern influence, is the method stuff. But in the grand scheme of things, I really do think behaviorism saved psychology. Even though it, was <clears throat> it went way over the edge. Questions about this? Okay. Don't you go bragging about how much you've seen. You haven't seen a thing. Don't even waste my time with anecdotes from Jackson's home. Don't
Thanks for listening to the lecture. Um, all of the audio is available, of course, on iTunes or whatever podcatcher you're using. Just search for da- uh, Dr. Dave Brodbeck's uh, Psychology Lectures in Algoma University, which is the most ungainly title ever. Uh, these are released under a sh- uh, uh, Creative Commons copyright share like 3.0 Canada. Uh, you can't use these for commercial purposes. Um, you feel free to share them uh, and feel free to mash them up any way you want. But if you do that, that means I get to do the same thing with your stuff. Sort of like the GAU license. Um, 
I hope you learned something. But if you didn't, I, unless you're one of my students, I really don't care. Um, the music.